0: Let me encourage you to grab your Bible and open up to the book of Revelation chapter one. Well, this is a very special morning on the Christian calendar as we get to reflect upon and celebrate the reality that though they went to the tomb that morning over 2000 years ago, they were told that Jesus was not there, but instead he was alive. And I was thinking a little bit this week about what it must've been like for those women in particular when they first went to the grave to anoint the body of Jesus and to care for, for him only to hear those words. He is not here. He's alive. And how their hearts must have been filled with with such excitement, how the adrenaline must have been coursing through their veins, how they must have rushed back, and how much they would have longed to tell people that the Savior, Jesus Christ, though they saw him dead, he is now alive. What must it have been like when they first had the opportunity to lay their eyes on Jesus Christ? Risen from the grave. What a moment that must have been when they caught a glimpse of their Savior again for the first time. In the book of Revelation, John, he was given the privilege of seeing Jesus risen from the grave on the earth, but here we see in Revelation chapter one that he is transported into a heavenly vision where he has the unique privilege of seeing Jesus Christ In the flesh himself, but with his eyes in a heavenly sense. He gazed upon Jesus while Jesus was on the earth, and now he looks upon the face of Jesus in heaven. But as John looks at Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, he does not realize initially that it is in fact his old friend, the one whom he loves, the one whom he modeled his very life and speech after. And we are introduced to a vision of Jesus that is so staggering in the book of Revelation. And I want to read it for us as we are reflecting upon our Savior. Beginning in verse 12, we're going to read through verse 18. We're going to focus our time mainly on verse 17 and 18, but it's important that we get a little bit of the context and just see what John saw just for a moment. He says this in verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars, Here, through the eyes and through the pen of the Apostle John, we get a glimpse of exactly who Jesus is, and I pray that this will stir your heart and mine to stir us to a place of greater love and affection for Jesus as we are reminded once again of who Jesus is. Let us first see that he is the eternal God. Jesus is the eternal God, and John, what he does here from verse 12 all the way up to verse 17 is he he tries to do his best to express what he is seeing, what God allows him to see in the throne room of heaven. And he's reaching for language to try to explain all that he's seeing and the magnitude and the sheer awesomeness of what he is experiencing. And so he uses these vivid images, these word pictures, to help describe what he's seeing. And it's important to understand that with every word picture that John gives, it expresses part of who Jesus is and his character. And what. John does as he reaches back with all of these descriptions and the language he uses, one like the Son of Man, the pictures of the, the white hair and the feet burnished with bronze. He's reaching back into Old Testament images in places like Daniel chapter 7 and 10 and in the book of Zechariah where other people were transported, were allowed a heavenly glimpse of the Son of Man and the Son of God. And he's saying, I, I, like them, was given the, the awesome privilege of seeing the Almighty. And the appearance that he describes here is utterly staggering if we understand what each part really unfolds for us. And time does not permit us to go into all of the details of what each of these images expresses, but this picture tells us, just in summary form, something so significant. It's a picture of his strength and his power, It's a picture of his purity and the holiness, the blazing glory of God. It's a picture of sovereignty and full and total authority over the universe. And here is John standing in the presence of God. I wonder, have you ever thought of what it might be like to stand in the presence of God? Have you ever thought of what you would do if you were given the privilege of being transported before God Almighty, the King and Creator of the universe? What would your response be like? There's an entire song about this, right? A movie that just came out. I can only imagine, if you just think through the lyrics of that song, right, trying to contemplate and trying to put into words how our hearts might respond, what we might do with our body language, what we might do with our lips as we sing maybe unto him, If you were to see Jesus Christ exalted to the right hand of the Father, God Almighty, as he truly is and as you truly are, how would you respond? I imagine it would be somewhat like John. Did you notice what the text tells us here about what John does? In verse 17, it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's another way of saying that he utterly passed out. He fainted. That The blazing glory of God in front of his face caused him to fall down as though he was dead. And by the way, this is the common reaction of any sinner who is brought into the presence of the almighty God throughout the scriptures. You remember Moses? Moses had such a unique relationship with God and he says to God, God, I want to see your glory. God, show me your glory. In other words, God, show me all that you are. Let me be exposed to all that you are in all of your beauty and all of your perfection and in all of your holiness. And God says, Moses, you don't know what you're asking. If you were to see me, you would die. He says, but I will give you a glimpse of my glory, I will tuck you into the cleft of a rock and I will shield the front and I will let you see the afterglow of my glory because if you were to see the full weight of my glory, it would incinerate you on the spot. I think of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter six, he was brought into the throne room of God and he sees this vision of Jesus and all of his glory and he says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I am undone, he says, I'm done, I'm ruined. John falls down at the feet of Jesus like a dead man. But then did you notice? Did you notice how Jesus responds? He puts his right hand on him. And he says to him, fear not. You can imagine that Jesus with his Gentle hand of authority and love lifts John up before him and says, there's nothing for you to fear. Don't be afraid. And then he tells him in verse 17, with no uncertain terms, who exactly he is standing in front of. And the words that he uses to describe himself are so important. Notice what he says, fear not, I am the first and the last. These words are reminiscent of Old Testament passages which speak of God and God alone. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, look at what Isaiah says. He says, "'Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no God.'" In Isaiah chapter 48, verse 12, Isaiah says again, listen to me, O Jacob o, and Israel, whom I called, I am he, I am the first and I am the last. This is essentially what, what God said to Moses when he spoke to him from the burning bush. He simply said the words, I am, meaning I am the first and the last. I am the alpha and the omega. I am the one who has eternally existed. And here we see the words are applied to none other than Jesus Christ. And the reply to Jesus Christ again when he talks about him coming back and returning in Revelation 22 verse 13, where he makes this direct link to the one and only God, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Here we see that Jesus is the eternal God. He is absolute Lord, both of creation and of history. He starts and he finishes. He is before all and he is after all. All is under his sovereign authority and control. And to understand the significance of the resurrection, you have to first understand this reality. You have to know who Jesus is. The resurrection makes no sense if you do not understand Jesus as the eternal God. You see, Jesus is not just a good man, as some would have you believe. Jesus was not simply a good religious teacher either. Jesus was not some religious zealot fighting for a cause. Jesus is God. That's why John passed out. He stands in his sinful condition before God and the only response he has is to fall down like a dead man. And you see, to see Jesus today as he is and as we truly are in our sinful condition is more than we can take. It's more than we could handle. In our sinful condition, the magnificence of his glory would overwhelm us just like it did John. We wouldn't survive it. You see, our sin has made us an enemy of God. Our sin has declared to God, God, I I don't want you in my life. I do not want your love. I do not want your authority. I will not submit to you. Our sin is a declaration of our independence from God. With our sin, we drew a line in the sand and said, God, you stay over there. I'm going to be over here all by myself and I'll be just fine. And as a result of this separation between us and God, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin, what we have earned because of our rebellion and our sin, is death itself. Death, both physical, yes, all of us will die, and that is a result of sin against God, but spiritual death, alienation from God for all of eternity, experiencing not the presence of his blessing, but experiencing instead the presence of his wrath against sin. And when we see God in our sin, we will be fully exposed. And nothing we have done or nothing we could do could ever save us. You see, we have to understand that Jesus is the eternal God because when we understand this problem that we have, we understand that only God can save us from God. And Jesus thankfully, claimed to be God. And he proved he was God. You see, how did he do that? By overcoming our greatest enemy, the one foe that every one of us faces, death itself. Secondly, this morning, we rejoice not only that he is the eternal God, but that he is the conquering king. You notice he moves on in verse 18 from being the first and the last, and then he says this, and the living one I died, he says, and behold, I am alive forevermore. He says he is the living one, and he says to John, I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever and ever. I overcame the grave. I conquered death. I died once and will never die again. John knew Jesus died. He was there, remember? Everything we celebrated on Good Friday, everything we have to try to envision with our mind's eye, just consider this for a moment. The author who wrote this book, he saw it all firsthand. He saw the horror of the cross. He saw the one he loved being mocked and ridiculed. He saw him paraded out in front of the crowds. He saw the sign that hung over his head, King of the Jews. He saw the crown of thorns. He saw him stripped naked and stuck to a piece of wood like a common criminal. He saw them take giant nails and pierce his hands and his feet. He saw the soldier take the spear and pierce his side. He watched Jesus bleed out and die. He heard the words, it is finished. 33 years after seeing that event, he now sees Jesus exalted in this blazing, glorious display of splendor and majesty and power and strength. Jesus really did die, and John knew it. It wasn't a hoax. It wasn't a myth. They weren't playing a game. It really happened. It was historical truth. And as we remembered on Friday, the Bible teaches that the death of Jesus was the only plan that could rescue sinners. It was the only thing that could rescue us from our sin, that could pay the penalty for our sin. His death, his blood that was shed, was the penalty that we all deserve, but he stood in our place and he paid it in full. You say, well, how much did I owe? Well, what was the size of the debt I owed to God because of my sin? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever like maybe tried to a, a process or quantify uh, the debt that you owe to God? For some of us, we're like, well, let me just kind of really quickly go through the Rolodex of the sins that I've committed. And maybe the big ones will kind of be, you know, be measured a little bit greater than some of the other small ones. And so I, I, here, here's my debt that I owed. And that's assuming that you're remembering everything you've ever done. And then maybe you think, well, maybe if I could just accumulate enough good things in my life, maybe if I could just be moral enough, maybe I could kind of, kind of balance that out a little bit or weight it better in my favor. But here's the problem. That's not how the debt of our sin is determined. See, our debt of sin isn't measured by the value of the sins we've committed, but by the value of the one we've sinned against. And we understand this, there's a lot of ways in life that I think we understand that, that a, a, the same act can be weighted differently based upon the one that act is committed against. Let me give you an illustration of this. I mean, if you were to walk along the street and jump out of the car and run up to some stranger and spit in their face, that would be pretty bad, right? I would not suggest doing that. But then if you, if you walked into your, your place of work and walked up to your boss and spat in their face, That's a little bit different, isn't it? Like, okay, it's getting a little bit more weight. And imagine you went to your spouse or your kids and spat in their face. Like, okay, now we're getting really serious. Or imagine you walked up to the prime minister. Don't get any ideas. But you see, as, as we kind of ramp up the person that's being sinned against, all of a sudden the same offense becomes greater and greater and greater. Do you realize that every one of us in our sin has spat in the face of God Almighty? And the problem with that is that God is of infinite value. So every one of us, because of our rebellion against God, having shaken our fist in his face, having spat in his face, having resisted and rejected him, we all have an infinite debt that none of us can pay and so we need an infinite payment to accomplish paying an infinite debt. Thankfully, as we've just seen, God has said he would save us God said he would make the payment in and of himself, that he would pay the debt in full, and that's what he does is he hangs on the cross, an infinite sacrifice, paying an infinite debt, all being squared away right there on a piece of wood 2,000 years ago. But the question maybe that we have to ask is this, how do I know, okay, okay, let's assume that that's true, that Jesus paid the debt, the infinite price was paid through the infinite savior Jesus Christ, to the infinite God. How do I know that God accepted that debt? How can I have confidence and be assured that God says yes, I will take the payment, I have received the payment. The answer is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is God taking out the rubber stamp and stamping it on our certificate of debt and saying, it is paid in full. I have accepted the payment, all of it, The resurrection is proof that payment was accepted. It is proof that Jesus Christ has declared it is enough, that God has told us, listen, it is enough. And you know what that means for you and I? Listen, it means this that no matter how great your sin has been, His grace is greater still. It means however sinful you've been, the payment of Jesus Christ is enough. It means that no matter how long you have struggled with sin, however long you've rejected God, However long you've resisted turning to him, the payment of Jesus Christ is enough to cover all of that. It doesn't matter how much you've loved your sin this morning, it doesn't matter how much you've struggled with your sin, it doesn't matter how ugly your sin is, it doesn't matter how destructive your sin has been, it doesn't matter how addictive your sin has been, the payment of Jesus Christ was enough, amen? Atonement, perfect atonement has been made. The debt is paid in full, and if he is alive, then you can be too. Here and now, you can be made alive. If you're not already, you can take your debt and he can place it upon Jesus Christ and he can pay for it all and he can raise you to newness of life. The resurrection is the basis for our present hope and for our present life, but you need to understand this too, that the resurrection is the basis for our future hope and our future life. The resurrection declares that right now you can have spiritual life. You can be brought from death to life spiritually. You can be made new. You can be a new person in Jesus Christ. You can be reconciled to God right now. But it also tells us that our future hope is set and secure. You see, one day, all of us will die physically. And one day, all of us will be raised back to life physically. The resurrection declares that we have a future hope, that we will be raised to the newness of life in the future with God. 1 Corinthians 15, 54, the Apostle Paul says this, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the victory has been won at the cross, but it will be fully and finally consummated one day when we are raised back to life and the death of death will be finalized. Because Jesus conquered death. Death does not have the final say, Jesus does. He is the king. Victory was accomplished and because he has conquered our greatest enemy, we can realize this about Jesus as well. He is the liberating savior. He is the eternal God. He is the conquering king and he is finally the liberating savior. You see, Jesus has conquered sin and death and hell. John goes on to write that I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Hades is similar to the Old Testament word sheol. It means the grave or the place of all the dead, or as it's used here in the book of Revelation, the place of the the unrighteous or the wicked dead, the place where all those apart from God go. And we're reminded here, listen, that death claims the body and Hades or hell claims the soul, but only if Jesus says so. In the miniseries, The Band of Brothers, there's a scene, it's a World War II miniseries, but there there's a scene where the the troops, the US troops in particular had had defeated the the German army and they're celebrating their victory. And all of a sudden, one of the cadets comes running back in to the the captain and and saying, Captain, you've gotta come see this, I found something. It's it's out in in the woods, you gotta come and see this. He says, what is it? And he says, "I, I don't know. And he he leads the captain and the rest of the platoon, platoon, they follow in trucks and they go out into this remote area in the middle of the woods and you can kind of see as the trees begin to clear, there's these fences all around enclosing a bunch of prisoners. It's a death camp. And they're in the middle of celebrating their victory and all of a sudden they, they see clinging to these fences, these barbed wire fences, these hands, these gaunt faces staring out at them. They're thin and frail. They're malnourished. The life has literally been drained from their body. They look hopeless and in despair. And in the quietness of the scene, as the soldiers walk up and stare at these lifeless faces, there's this powerful moment where the captain says, open these gates And they come, they they break the chains and they, they slowly push the chains open and all of a sudden you can see glimmers of hope flooding into those lifeless faces and what we're reminded of right here is that Jesus Christ has the keys to the gates of death and Hades because he has ripped them out of the hands of the enemy. And as a result of his victory, he and he alone can unlock lock the shackles of sin and slavery to it. He and he alone can open the gates of Hades and lead us out into life. He alone opens and closes the door. He alone has the authority. He is in control of who gets locked up and who gets liberated. This is why the resurrection, listen, is so important. It's important theologically, Everything hinges upon the reality of the resurrection. Paul says this, if Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. We have no hope because we're still dead in our sins. But the resurrection is so important, listen personally for each one of us this morning. Because without the resurrection, every one of us, if we were to stand before God right now, would have every reason to fear. Without Jesus, there is much to fear in meeting God. Without the hope of liberation and freedom from the power and bondage to sin, we have every reason to fear God. Without the hope of the resurrection, which guarantees that we will not receive the punishment for our sin because it has been received upon Jesus Christ, there is every reason for us to fear meeting God. And Jesus is terrifying in his holiness to all sinners, listen, we celebrate this weekend that he died to pay the penalty for sin and by virtue of his resurrection, he now holds the keys of death and hell. And I just want you to look again in verse 17 at the words said to John as he fell at the feet of Jesus as though he was dead and the gentle and loving hand of Jesus is laid upon him. The words from Jesus, fear not. And if Jesus, listen, if Jesus tells John to not fear, it is only because John's sins have been forgiven. Jesus has the keys, he can loose all the bonds and he can liberate all the prisoners. The glorious good news of the gospel is that all those who trust in Jesus have their sins forgiven and they're set free from sin's penalty and power. And that could be you this morning. The death of Jesus saves all of those who trust in him. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees that you can be made right with God. And you can be confident today. If you walked in here today not knowing God and now realizing that if you were to stand before him and that you would hear the words, you should be fearful. Fearful. You can have confidence this morning that though that is true when you walked in, you could walk out of here with confidence knowing you will hear the words like John, fear not. If you would turn to Jesus today. If you would turn and repent of your sins and believe that he is your perfect substitute, that he is the son of God, he is God eternal, that he is the conquering king, he defeated death, and that he rose from the grave victorious, and that he and he alone can liberate you from your sins, you today can be brought from death to life. He can call your name, and maybe he's calling it right now, he's calling you from the grave to step into the glorious light of his day, the resurrection day. And for those of you who are in Christ today, this is a glorious day, amen? This is the day of all our hope. So would you today let the life-giving words of the resurrection ring loudly in your ears? Jesus died, and behold, he lives forevermore, and because he lives, so too do you. And would you let the words of Jesus ring loudly in your ears, knowing this, knowing that one day you will stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords in all of his blazing glory and you will hear the words. Be confident of this Christian this morning. Fear not. And the loving, gentle hand of Jesus will lift you up and the loving, warm embrace of the Father will fling the gates of heaven open to you as he has flung the chains of sin away from you. And for this act of mercy and grace, Let us sing forevermore. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Amen. Let's pray. God, may that be the sweet song of our hearts, even this morning. God, what glorious truths we have the privilege of knowing and celebrating this morning. Father, that once we were dead in our trespasses and sins, But God, you loved us so much that you would send your only begotten son, that you, Lord, would come for us. The debt was so great, an infinite debt that could only be paid by an infinite substitute, an infinite payment. And God, knowing that we could not accomplish this on our own, you, you and you alone were that infinite payment for us. And so, Father, we we humbly bow before you, knowing, God, we have nothing to offer you. God, we know our sin, we know our failures, we know how, Lord, as sheep we have wandered and strayed from you so very often, but, Father, we declare with confidence today, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we will one day hear the words, fear not that we will be welcomed into eternity with you, that we will enjoy your presence and your life forevermore. And God, we long for that day. And until that day comes, may we forevermore sing, "Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Lord, would you receive our praise and our worship now? Would our hearts, Lord, be so stirred? Would your spirit still, Lord, stir our hearts, Lord? Whatever we've brought in here, whatever we're facing in this life, whatever sins, Lord, we're struggling with, Lord, would we lay them down at your feet? God, would you allow us the freedom this morning to sing the praises to you, the one who is worthy, the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Behold, you were dead, but now you are alive forevermore. We praise you, our living and reigning Savior. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.